Uh, well, it's uh, good to be back in MAFRA again, even if it's only electronically. Uh, we're continuing your series in Isaiah, and uh, this morning we're up to Isaiah chapter 29. So obviously, obviously it'll be helpful if you've read all of Isaiah 29, and you'll benefit more fully if you've also read uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. And John chapter 9, verses 24 to 41. Uh, let me pray for us, then if you could uh, keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 29. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're at work in this world. Uh, we thank you that you will ultimately judge wickedness and uh, can continue to bring about your saving purposes in your people. Uh, please help us to understand these concepts now of uh, causing the blind to see and those who claim to see to make blind. Uh, continue to cause us to have our eyes open and our ears unplugged to uh, see and grasp your word properly because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, apparently Richard Nixon, who was President of the United States in the early 70s, in wanting, wanting to be one of the greatest American presidents of all time, he had all conversations in the Oval Office recorded hoping to use various things that were said against his opponents. But in the end, he was ironically destroyed by those recordings because they revealed him conspiring to cover up his involvement in the Watergate scandal. And even more ironically, this was all played out in full view of the public because everything was recorded. And what we see in this passage is an explanation of a much more sinister relative of irony, which is being blind while claiming to see. Or to put it in other terms, human conspiring in rejection of God's wisdom, our own schemes becoming the cause of our own condemnation. Now, you've been working through Isaiah and you would have seen that Isaiah prophesied these sorts of things to the southern kingdom of Israel, represented by the region of Judah and particularly Jerusalem as the centre of the worship of Yahweh, the God who delivered them from Egypt and established the Davidic dynasty by which God planned to ultimately rule all nations. And Isaiah focuses in on a couple of problems in particular. One of those problems is that Jerusalem, as the place of God's covenant presence, has completely failed to represent him well. And so Isaiah has put before the people what Jerusalem should be and ultimately will be in contrast to the his present reality of the Jerusalem 700 years before Jesus. 
And so the warning to Jerusalem is that Yahweh will come against you for so badly misrepresenting him because how can such a corrupt place uh, bear witness to the God of all holiness and righteousness? The second main problem Isaiah focuses in on is the failure of the house of David. Uh, Kings were described as shepherds because they were to lead the people safely from the front and help provide nourishment for them under the ultimate shepherding of Yahweh himself. As uh, David himself sang, Yahweh is my shepherd. But the house of David has failed. Uh, They've failed to lead the people in trusting in their covenant God. And the particular expression of these problems in chapters 28 to 33 of Isaiah is that as the nation of Assyria becomes greater and threatens Judah and Jerusalem, will the people, as led by their kings and priests, Trust in Yahweh, or will they instead depend on political alliances with other nations, especially with Egypt, which God has expressly forbidden? And this is pretty clear if we just quickly look at the next chapter, chapter 30, verses 1 to 3, which you'll look at next time, but it says this. Our stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine and to make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation." But chapters uh, 29, as did chapter 28, focuses not on that issue specifically but on the underlying issues that lead people to make such decisions and why people refuse to trust in Yahweh's great power and faithfulness even though he has proved faithful and powerful in the past. So the first thing we notice in verse 1 of Isaiah 29 is that Jerusalem is described by the word Ariel, which is the word for the hearth of the altar where sacrifices were made. And the reason for this is because the people think that they are doing well as Yahweh's people because they are faithfully performing all the religious and sacrificial requirements. This is compounded by the fact that Jerusalem think themselves to be worshipping Yahweh properly and sincerely compared to her idolatrous sister in the northern kingdom. That is why Jerusalem is also referred to here as the place of David's dwelling. David took this city in his military capacity and made it the central place of worship. The idea is, how could Yahweh possibly be against us? But Isaiah is scathing 
in the way that he says year after year, round and round you perform these external religious actions which pagans do with their practices as well. It all just goes round and round like a cyclic ritual. And so verse 2, there's a play on words in that Yahweh will be an altar, uh, they will be an altar on which he lights a fire of judgment. And just as David encamped against Jerusalem to make it his, Yahweh will siege Jerusalem. So the people think that Jerusalem cannot be destroyed because Yahweh dwells in the temple and they are keeping him happy by their sacrifices. But shockingly, the reality is that he will be the one outside the city sieging them, fighting against them. And also the half of the altar is the place where divine anger is turned aside but instead here in Jerusalem it will become the place where Yahweh's anger is ignited. If we think about this, this is a terrifying idea, isn't it? Instead of God's anger being satisfied by the people's sacrifices, it becomes inflamed. And the final outcome of that, verse 4, is that they will be like people mumbling from the dust in humility, which contrasts with their false boastful confidence in their own schemes and wisdom, which, as we'll see shortly, isn't wisdom at all. But in spite of all this failure and covenant unfaithfulness, Jerusalem cannot be ultimately destroyed until Yahweh's purposes are fulfilled because it is ultimately his purposes that will prevail. So the people of Jerusalem were partly correct in that Yahweh himself cannot be defeated but they were incorrect to think that he wouldn't discipline his people in a temporary and severe way by any enemy assaults on the holy city. So verses eight describe, uh, five to eight describe the outcome of those who try to defeat God's ultimate purposes. They will be like chaff. They might seem significant, but the wind will just blow them away. The enemies of God will be like a dream that seemed real, but they're gone in the morning. The, um, the last federal election in Australia was described from Labor's point of view as the unlosable election. And now we know the result. In a much more significant way, God's enemies may eat and be satisfied but it will be like eating and drinking in a dream and waking to find that you're still hungry and thirsty. Verse 8. So at one level, this is referring to the time when Assyria besieged Jerusalem and under the leadership and prayerful dependence of one of the few faithful kings of this time, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, 
God temporarily acted against Assyria without the people of Jerusalem raising a finger. And you can read that in Isaiah 36, 37. But like most of the prophets, Isaiah is pushing this idea beyond the immediate present situation into the ultimate future where we have a new Jerusalem in the renewed creation where God will defeat all that's hostile to his, his plans uh, for this holy city, for this centre of his presence. So while Isaiah is addressing a particular time and place, he is also in this chapter looking at the underlying human condition that causes us to resist Yahweh. And we see here in this regard that we, or that people, us included, get preoccupied with outward or external religious actions and fail to see the much bigger problem of internal motivations and idolatrous views of God, of thinking of God other than he is and has revealed himself to be. And the next verses build on this. And the way that this is described in verse 9 is, astonish yourself and be astonished, blind yourselves and become blind. Back in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when Isaiah was given his job description of what his prophecy or his ministry would achieve, he was told in his preaching to harden their hearts and to blind their eyes so they cannot see. And basically what this means is that Isaiah's preaching of God's truth was to confirm people in their hardness of heart and complete the process of their blindness to a true knowledge of God and his ways and purposes. Part of the reason for this is that Yahweh is determined to expose the true nature of these people and to show the rightness of the judgment that will come upon them. And we see here in verse 9 that the people themselves are active in this process. People contribute to their own blindness and hardness towards God. Sometimes in this world we attribute some of people's failures to ignorance and sometimes that's reasonable. Sometimes we just don't know something. But when it comes to knowledge of God, there is such a thing as willful ignorance. See, we're all prone to focus on things that support our perspective and ignore or dismiss things that don't. But this is particularly the case with the gospel. These people in verse 10 have become dull to what it means to live in a God-centred world. (coughs) Some people become so set in their opposition to God that they cannot interpret anything to be otherwise. Uh, In the Age paper recently, one of their regular writers said this, that the COVID, this COVID situation should be the final nail in the coffin 
of any belief in a benevolent deity. See, his hardness or blindness leads him to the conclusion that there is no other interpretation of this COVID situation than there is no good, powerful God. I guess you could try to interpret things that way without giving any thought to the question, given our moral, spiritual orientation at the moment, why should we live in peaceful, comfortable circumstances? You could completely ignore that question if you wanted to. So verses 11 to 12 describe two sorts of people in their negative response to God's word. And that's what all this reading a book that's sealed is about. One group can read and understand but cannot be bothered or don't have the spiritual insight to go to the effort to do so. So in a sense, God's word is kept from them by their own apathy. And the second group cannot read but don't care to do anything about hearing God's word anyway. They don't try to find some way to hear God's word. But the concerning thing here in Isaiah is that these are God's people. And they don't want to go to any effort to hear his word. They've become hardened to it. And it's a bit like today when people read a part of the Bible and simply refuse to acknowledge that what is written is what it means. It's like people who can usually read and comprehend quite well suddenly cannot do so when it comes to parts of the Bible. Suddenly their capacity to comprehend diminishes. Uh, Steve Messer and I uh, have started writing because of things like this, started writing a series of dark devotions to try and help people engage the sorts of passages or verses that don't find their way onto nice cross-stitched wall hangings. If you want to see some of those, let me know. Or today, some people won't go to any effort to wrestle with the text, even though they are the words of God. See, sometimes we just foolishly think our own wisdom to be better. And it's in this context that we have the more well-known verse 13. They honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This verse helps us understand that this lack of spiritual insight is because their worship of Yahweh is not driven by hearts that love and understand. They are religious in their performance of external rituals and claim allegiance to the God of the Exodus deliverance, but only by their lips. 
But And Yahweh's answer to this, again, it's surprising in a way. It's not just about judgment. Another aspect of his answer to this is to perform again Exodus-type wonders in bringing about a complete freedom from slavery to human wisdom, verse 14. And, of course, Paul uses this verse in 1 Corinthians to help them see that the gospel does not accord with human wisdom. The foolishness of God's wisdom in salvation through a crucified Messiah (laughs) utterly confounds human wisdom. Isaiah sees here that what people really need is to be illuminated, to see the weakness and limitation of human wisdom for what it is. And verses 15 to 24 describe how Yahweh will undo this love of our own capacity to understand the nature of this world and what we really need. So verses 15 to 16 describe the problem again in slightly different terms. Here we see that people think they are making grave, substantial counsel together and stupidly think that the Lord doesn't see what they are doing or doesn't know their motivations and what is behind it. And this is described in verse 16 as turning things upside down or seeing things in reverse. And it describes how stupid this is in terms of a potter and a vessel. Think of how ridiculous it is that a coffee mug could speak to the one who made it and say, what are you doing? Don't do it that way. This is how Isaiah is picturing these people of Jerusalem. As though they are the potter and God is the vessel. And verses 17 to 21 describe what is necessary to ultimately fix this problem, which is nothing short of a renewed order, a redeemed creation. And we can see the various levels on which that will happen. So verse 17, the abundance of fruitfulness of the created order will flourish. This is talking about a a, a new Eden, a restored world. Verses 18 to 19, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the meek will glory in God who has lifted them up. Their hope in Yahweh will be vindicated. And verses 20 to 21, all wickedness will be cut off. And this is the other side of the same coin of salvation. See, we cannot have a renewed world and have wickedness still in it. It has to be destroyed in a final way. All the injustice, uh, perversion and arrogance of this world 
must be removed on that day. And verses 22 to 24, this day coming will see Israel or Jacob fulfil their purpose, which is to be the people through whom God brings this renewed order. If we look at the bigger picture of Isaiah, God's plan is to unite Jew and Gentile under the rule of his son in this rebuilt holy Jerusalem. And this continues to be his priority. And just in regard to this idea of reversing human wisdom, if you're looking for more reading in this time of COVID, there's a great little book by G.K. Beale, and it's called Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. This book very helpfully shows how these themes we're looking at here are expressed throughout the whole Bible. And of course, the ultimate coming day described in this passage has come. It has begun in the person and work of Christ. And we can see this in two of the main ways this passage is quoted in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is disputing with Pharisees about washing hands before eating as a ritual of ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus, in this context, accuses them of putting the traditions of men above the commands of God. And he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. This people draw near with their mouth and honour me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In, uh, in my plumbing sometimes I come across uh, situations where people are trying to renovate a house that is pretty much ruined. And really the best way forward would be to burn it down and rebuild it. It would be much cheaper and a better job in the end. And in effect, this is what Yahweh did with Jerusalem. He removed a remnant to Babylon and burnt Jerusalem to the ground to rebuild it. But as we know, the problem was that the exile didn't really change anything. For the new Jerusalem to stay renewed, it must be occupied by renewed people. And at the time of Jesus, we see that the Israel of his generation is the same as the Israel of Isaiah's generation, which is why he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. And interestingly, also in this passage in Matthew 15, he says two other things that expand on Isaiah. He explains with clarity that true cleanness isn't about religious rituals because it's ultimately a problem of the heart. What defiles us isn't what food goes into our mouth. It's the vileness that comes out of our hearts. The true answer to which is that we need a renewed, transformed heart. He also says if a blind person leads a blind person, they will both fall into a pit. So don't 
follow blind people. Don't follow people that are hardened to God's words and who, whose eyes are blinded to what the text says. Follow the one who gives sight. And this idea is elaborated in John chapter 9. In this chapter, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. This man became a living illustration of the fulfilment of Isaiah 29. Jesus physically opens this man's eyes to show also that he has the capacity to open people's eyes spiritually. The day spoken of in Isaiah has come. The one who brings sight to the blind opens the eyes of the blind. He is the one who will bring about a renewed order, a redeemed creation. And the man Jesus healed in John 9 sums it up well when being questioned by the Pharisees. He says, I don't really know who this guy is. I just know I was blind, but now I see. And at the very end of this chapter, when Jesus is helping us understand what this all means, he says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, this gets to the fundamental problem with humanity. Essentially, like the generation of Isaiah and Jesus, we are hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word for an actor. It's playing a part. And in this case, in the Bible, what it means is that what's in our hearts and what we appear to be like externally are fundamentally different things. And this problem affects everyone to some degree. It's no accident that John 9 and 10 are linked. Chapter 10 is about the good shepherd, the Davidic king. So the overall idea is don't follow your wisdom and certainly not your heart because it's corrupted. Follow the good shepherd because he's demonstrated his commitment to our well-being by giving his life for the sheep in a way that confounds human wisdom. See, we need to think about it in terms of Isaiah. He died at the hands of human hypocrisy and foolishness to save us from condemnation for our hypocrisy. Uh, John Newton says it well. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Let me um, pray for us. 
Father, we acknowledge the words of Isaiah to be true, not just about his own generation or Jesus' generation, but about us as well, that apart from your grace, we are blind people, that we resort to our own wisdom. We think our understanding at times better than your word. And apart from your grace, we would not see uh, in the person of Jesus your extraordinary, gracious salvation. So please continue to open our eyes to uh, see your glory expressed in your Son, to see human nature for what it is, to turn from our hypocrisy and wickedness, uh, to truly see with clarity. Uh, please continue to help us to persevere, to believe in the one who came to give sight to the blind. Uh, for we need this from you in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.